Tonight's reading is from Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Downtown. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us tonight. Uh, preschool and kindergarten kids, you can head back with Kathy and Laura. You guys are going to head down for your class. The big kids are going to learn about Jonah up here. You're going to learn about Jesus downstairs. Um, so as uh, Olivia just read for us, we are preaching through the book of Jonah for the next two months, and we are excited to do so. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about this at the end of the sermon, but we are spending a season preparing our hearts for mission, for what God has called us to on the back half of the summer as well as this fall. Uh, We feel like it is necessary to prepare our hearts before we talk about sharing the good news of the gospel with our community and with our world. And Jonah is a great book to assess what's going on in our own hearts. So we may have differing uh, familiarity with the book of Jonah, but as we read it for ourselves and as we dig into it over the course of eight weeks, we will see that it is more than just about a fish and a prophet. So we are going to jump into Jonah chapter one. We're going to cover those first three verses that Olivia just read for us. Um, By way of a little bit more introduction about the book of Jonah, as we're starting this week going through, want to get us acquainted with the book of Jonah. And I'm going to run the risk during this entire sermon of dipping into future sermons. Uh, But I'm not preaching for the next two weeks, so Brooks is just going to have to deal with it if I dip into his sermons over the next two weeks. But it's one of those stories and one of those scriptures that you really have to take in the whole before you can really understand what's going on in the bite-sized chunk. So a couple of things. I would encourage you to read the book of Jonah. Um, You can read it while you're warming something up in the microwave. It's real short, you know, two pages in my preaching Bible here. It's real short. I would encourage you to read it for yourself if you haven't already to prepare yourself for the series that we're going through and prepare your heart for what the Lord may say. Um, But tonight, I'm going to give us a brief introduction to Jonah and the book of Jonah, and then really going to try to stick to the first three verses, because actually, there's a lot there. There's a lot to be said about the first three verses, and the hope is that tonight it wouldn't just be your pastor speaking, but it would be the Lord speaking to each one of us. Would you pray with me and for me, and we'll jump into the book of Jonah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. God, we want to stop— and marvel at the fact that you speak to us. Father, you spoke to Jonah. You spoke the world into existence. You've spoken most powerfully through your son, just as we saw in the book of Hebrews. And God, you're speaking through your spirit and your people and your word now. And God, we want to listen. God, give us ears that are ready to hear. Give us minds that are ready to understand. Give us hearts that are ready to believe, and give us hands and feet that are ready to obey you. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would have a word for each one of us. God, show us our hearts and what is in them. Show us our intentions and what is behind them. Then show us the good news of the gospel. 
what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, a few unique things about the book of Jonah because it is unique. It is one of the minor prophets. Um, There are other books and other prophets like it, but it is unique in a number of ways and really stands out among not just the minor prophets, but all of the minor prophets. And not only that, but the entire Old Testament. And I'm not just saying that because I've been studying it for the last few weeks. It really is unique. The first thing that's unique about the book of Jonah is that it is more about the prophet than the prophecy. If you open up the other books, uh, the other prophets of the Old Testament, I've been reading through them myself in my Bible reading plan. It is primarily the prophecies, the things that God says to the prophet and then the things that the prophet says. There's very little other dialogue or narrative to the story. But here in the book of Jonah, we see one line of prophecy. The rest of the book is about Jonah. So it stands out that this book is about the prophet and not so much the prophecy, clearly even just by magnitude. Also, we see in this book that we see a prophet that behaves badly. Instead of a prophet speaking against of people, that is behaving badly. We see primarily that the prophet is the one who is not behaving, and this is unique as well. The prophets in Scripture are not holy by any means, not perfect by any means, but here we see Jonah primarily making mistakes, and we find much to relate with. We see this book of the Bible written with quite a bit of satire involved. Satire is defined as the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. We see satire in the book of Jonah. Jonah is also unique in that Jonah is a historical figure. We learn from the book of 2 Kings. So it starts with a historical figure. It says who his father was, but that's it. We really don't get any other historical markers of what else is going on in the world or in Jonah's kingdom that he lives in. We really only know from other books. There's no other historical clues, which is unique to the book of Jonah. This is starting to dip into the future of the book, but we can see that the prophet actually does the opposite of what God tells him to do, but while those that are godless start to obey God. It's a unique feature. The historian Josephus from the uh, first century says he was not a Jew, but he said about the Jewish people that he didn't know exactly if this Jonah character was historical or not, but he said apparently he was a big deal to the Jews. Not only so, but in Matthew 16.4, we hear Jesus say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. There's significance in this book that even Jesus ascribes as well. This is a unique book that has lots of things going on in it, and I'm excited to jump in it with you. For a little bit of historical background, the events of this seemingly are taking place in the 8th century BC. This Jonah is a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, two other authors of minor prophets, and Jeroboam was the king of the Jews at this time. Oh, and one last thing, the last word in the book is cows. So we'll unpack that as we get a little closer as well, but that's a unique feature. So let's turn, if you haven't already, to Jonah chapter 1 and take a look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, 
Before we go on, I'd like us to stop here and marvel at the fact that God speaks to his people. What an amazing thing that God speaks. If you've read from the beginning of the Bible, you see that the very first thing that happens is that God is there and he starts speaking. He says light and there's light. He speaks and things come into existence. He speaks and things that are chaotic gain order. God speaks from the very beginning. This is amazing enough that the God of the universe who created everything would speak and would be able to create things by speaking, but then we see that he speaks to mankind, which is pretty amazing. He doesn't have to, but he does. And what's even more amazing is that mankind, though made for perfect relationship with God, choose to go their own way, choose to break that relationship with their Heavenly Father, and then God still speaks. What an amazing, marvelous, merciful thing that God continues to speak to mankind even after mankind closes their ears to God. What an amazing thing that God speaks. We read in the book of Hebrews, from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, that in the past God spoke spoke through many prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. It's a powerful thing to hear the voice of God. And it's an act of grace that we can even hear his voice. See, Jonah nor the Jewish people had been perfect. Even though they were called and set apart to be God's people to this point, they were not perfect. But God still speaks. God is sovereign, and he's omnipotent. He knows everything, and he knows that sometimes we're not going to listen or we're going to hear him and not obey. Yet, he still speaks. What an amazing, gracious, merciful God who still speaks to mankind. It's powerful that he would speak. Imagine if he hadn't. Imagine if he didn't speak to us. One of the most unloving and difficult things that can happen in a relationship is the silent treatment, right? When someone just doesn't speak. Have you ever sent a text message to someone that could be like confrontational or controversial and then you don't hear back from them right away and you don't see the three little dots to know they're typing something? It's just the silent treatment. You don't know. You don't know if you've offended them. You don't know if they're going to reply right away. You don't know if they have their phone with them. And all you're left to do is speculate. It's a terrible feeling. When I start seeing the three little dots that someone is typing back, I'm like, oh good, at least they're typing back. Even if they say they hate me, at least I'm going to hear back, right? The silent treatment is one of the worst things that can happen. God, in his mercy, speaks to man. If you'd like to meditate more on this, there will be a series of devotionals that uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Brooks, has written, and some other folks have contributed some prayer points to go with those. You can uh, sign up for that starting tomorrow, and that devotional will walk through the book of Jonah. But the very first one is about the beauty and the amazing, powerful work that God does through his speech. You will also, in your weekly email, which you get as a part of the downtown congregation, you'll receive a couple of specific devotionals written after a couple of our sermons that are reflections by a couple of our downtown community group leaders. So those are some supplemental things you can look forward to as we go through the book of Jonah. Let's take a look at verse 2. 
arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Arise and go to Nineveh. Lost in the English translation here is what God is saying to Jonah in the Hebrew. It is not lost in the Hebrew here that God is saying to Jonah, rise immediately and go immediately. He is not giving Jonah something to think about. He is saying, arise and go immediately. God is calling for instantaneous obedience. This is something as a parent that you have to work with your kids on, immediate obedience. You do this to build in an idea of authority, but also you do it for their safety. I tell my kids that if you're running out into the street and mommy and daddy say, stop, we don't want you to think about it and consider it. We just need you to obey. God here is calling Jonah to obey. Arise, go immediately. This is the God who has called everything into existence and he is talking to Jonah and giving him direction. And arising and obeying is typically what we see the prophets do. As we look at the major and the minor prophets of the Old Testament, we hear constantly the word of the Lord came to the prophet. They hear it and then they go and do it. Even some pretty crazy ends. The prophet Isaiah walked around naked because the Lord told him so. Jeremiah hid his undergarments in a rock and it says that he had retrieved them and I quote, after a very long time. Elijah ate from a bird. Ezekiel, Ezekiel ate the scroll that contained the word of the Lord. Ezekiel slept on his left side for 390 days because the Lord asked him to. The prophets were routinely asked to prophesy against kings that wanted them dead. Prophets hear the word of the Lord, they respond, and they obey. So, if we're reading scripture and we come to Jonah and we don't know the story and we read these first two verses, we expect Jonah to obey, right? The word of the Lord comes, the prophet hears, the prophet arises and immediately obeys. Verse 3, but Jonah rose. Okay, there's good and bad here, right? Jonah rose, right? He was told to arise, he arises, but we have this word, but. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. God gives him a command, and he immediately does half of it by standing up, but then he flees to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah called to immediately rise up and obey the Lord when instead he rises up and he goes away. It says he was going away. It says it twice. Away from the presence of the Lord. God calls him to go up and he goes down to Joppa. And we will see continually throughout this book of Jonah that Jonah continues to go descend down and down and down. God called him to go up. He continues to go down and down and down. He flees to Tarshish. This Tarshish, it could be a couple of different places. Most historians think that it was probably in southwest Spain. Nineveh, on the other hand, it was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh, 
seems to have sat across the river from Mosul in northern Iraq. Okay, so if you remember, I think in Iowa, it's fourth grade geography. We did in fifth grade in Missouri because we were one grade behind in everything in Missouri. But if you remember geography, just a little bit of world geography will tell you that southwest Spain and Iraq are not in the same region. Not only that, Tarshish was probably in southwest Spain, but even if it wasn't, historians are unanimous about the fact that Tarshish represented the ends of the earth. Jonah flees in the opposite direction and goes as far away from where God told him to go as he could. This is you or me going to the the airport and putting down uh, a credit card with no limit on it and saying, I want a ticket to the ends of the earth. And they say, well, we have some direct flights to Los Angeles and we have a direct flight to London. And you're like, no, 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 no. The farthest away I can possibly get. Money is no object. Take me as far away from here as you can. That's what Jonah says. That's what Jonah does. He disobeys the Lord in spectacular fashion. God says, go east and he goes west. God says, go up, and he goes down to Joppa. Jonah flees, and we're told that he is trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. So this begs the question, why would Jonah hear the clear call of God and turn and go the other way? We're going to talk about that, But as we do, we also need to ask the question, why do we hear the clear call of God and turn and go the other way? We will wait and see more uh, reasons why Jonah's heart is revealed throughout the book. We'll see more and more reasons why he didn't do what the Lord asked him to do. But here, just in these first three verses, we see a foreshadowing, and there's some conclusions we can draw for why Jonah turned and did not obey the Lord, and also why we do as well. So, number one, why would Jonah hear the clear call of God and turn away, and why do we first? Jonah was unique because he was called to prophesy to a Gentile nation. Jonah, though he was a Jew— was called to go to a Gentile nation and to share the word of the Lord. Now, this is unique for a couple of reasons. First, most of the time, the prophets of God were told to go to their nation and their king and prophesy against their people and their kingdom. And that's a certain kind of intimidating or scary, but that's the predominantly what we see God call his prophets to do. But here, Jonah is called to go to a Gentile nation, a non-Jewish nation, and proclaim the word of the Lord. So that's the first thing that's unique. The second thing about it is when you hear Gentile, don't just think not Jew. First off, Gentiles and Jews had a complicated relationship in the ancient world, for one thing. But secondly, this was a particular Gentile nation, that there had been animosity with the Jewish people really from the beginning. We need to learn a little bit about the Ninevites so we can see the full scope of why Jonah did not want to obey the Lord. 
Nineveh was referred to 22 times in the Old Testament. As I said earlier, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria across the river from Iraq. These people, the Ninevites, were the most violent people in the history of the ancient Near East. Some say they were the most violent civilization that has ever existed on the face of the earth. This was the second great empire of the Near East. They were known for impaling their their enemies, skinning their enemies, and putting their heads of their enemies on the wall of the city. They were also known for ripping the limbs off of their enemies, but leaving one arm so they could shake their hands to mock them as they died. This violence was particularly awful towards Jewish people. There are some ancient artifacts that they found in the last century called the Lashes Reliefs, where there is a series of stone engravings of the exploits of the people of Nineveh. And I wanted to show some pictures up here, but I knew that my kids and possibly other people's kids would be up here. And this is some violent, violent imagery. These folks were savage, especially against their enemy. These are the people that God called them to go to. You can start to see while even though Jonah heard clearly the word of the Lord, he was hesitant to obey what the Lord asked him to do. The second reason he didn't go is what we're leading into here. His personal safety was at stake. He feared for his life. He was afraid for his own personal safety. He was afraid that even though God told him to go, he would show up and they would just say, it's a Jew, and they would do all those terrible things to him as well. So he feared for his personal safety. Third, God's command did not fit his presuppositions. Remember, we need to keep two things in mind here before we throw stones at Jonah. We have to see here that this did not fit his presuppositions of who God was and how God acted. In the past, God had called the prophets of God to go to their own people, to their own kings, to tell them the word of the Lord or how they had been sinning or how they were idolatrous after the things of this world. But here, Jonah is told to go to this Gentile nation. And it's against his presuppositions because here's the thing. God knows, or Jonah knows, that when God speaks, things happen. We're going to learn more about this as we go through, but we can deduct, even from reading the rest of the Old Testament and the things that lead up to this, that if God is telling Jonah to go and proclaim this message to the Ninevites, some will repent. And they will be offered the grace of God. Jonah knows who God is. I'm going to just tiptoe here. We can't totally get into this. The scripture will get into this in the preceding verses and chapters. But just through the history of God speaking through prophets, some repent and some receive God's mercy and grace. God's command to go and to possibly save some of the Ninevites did not meet the presuppositions that Jonah had, it scrambled his categories. 
It made no sense to him, and so he fleed God's command. He ultimately knew that he could not flee the presence of God, but he could flee the presence of God's command. From the very beginning, God had told mankind that they had a choice to follow him or to go their own way. In Genesis chapter 4, God is speaking to Cain, and he is telling Cain, he's warning Cain that sin is after him. And he says, be careful, sin may rule over you. In the English, it's been translated differently, but in Hebrew, it says, sin may or might rule over you, meaning you have a choice. That sin is powerful, but you have a choice to obey God or not. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says three times to his people, I set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Choose today whom you will serve. Jonah, like God's people for centuries, is given the choice, are you going to obey God or are you going to flee the command of God? Back to the idea of presuppositions, Tim Keller points out that before we physically run away from God, our hearts have already run away from God internally. We know by Jonah's fleeing and going the opposite direction that something in his heart had already turned from God. He did not want to see Gentiles saved. He did not want to see mercy poured out on his enemy. Something inside of him had turned away even when hearing the voice of God. Rosemary Nixon is a uh, theologian who points out that if our enemies repent and obey, it only shows our own lack of obedience. Jonah knew in his own heart that he was disobedient. So in that moment, he either has a choice to trust God, just like we do, or to go his own way. He can't fathom the thought of preaching this message that God has given him and seeing Ninevites give their life to the Lord while his heart has run away from the Lord. The ultimate way to flee God and his command is to know what he says and not do it. It's to know that his kingdom is coming, but to want our kingdom more than his kingdom. So this shows some of the reasons and the motivations that we know already that Jonah has for not obeying the word of the Lord. We'll see more as we continue on, and we'll talk about those as we continue on in this series. Each week, we'll hit on more as we see more and more of his heart. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to talk more about what we're going to do this summer to mobilize ourselves for mission as a church. But before we talk about that, we need to talk about what's going on in our own hearts. We need to prepare our hearts for mission. Because just like I shared last week, sometimes there's logistics behind why we don't share our faith. Sometimes we overthink it. Sometimes we're too busy. Sometimes there's a lot of reasons why we don't. But often, it's because there's something wrong in our own hearts. God is prompting our hearts. God is asking us to build a relationship or to open our mouth or to serve our neighbor. But instead, we flee and we go our own way. So we need to prepare our hearts and equip our minds and change our schedules and our lives, our, the rhythms of our lives, in order to be mobilized for mission. So how do we prepare our hearts for mission? I have three diagnostic questions. 
that'll be up here on the screen. Three diagnostic questions to evaluate our heart. Where is God asking you to obey him and you have flat out told him with your actions or words, no? Where is God asking you to obey him and you flat out told him with your actions or your words, no? This is not something that you want to think about. This is not something that I want to think about. Not just talking about the sins of omission here, things that you're maybe unaware of or ignorant to, that the Lord just kind of dawns on you and you're like, I think I need to make this change. These are things that God has clearly said, either in his word or through his spirit or through other people, and you have flat out told him with your words and actions, no. If we believe that the good news of the gospel is good news, then we'll be not scared to follow wherever the Lord may call. We have to address any way inside of our own hearts that is going away from where God has called us to. We need to be aware of anything in our hearts that knows that God says, there's the Ninevites over there. There's what I want you to do. There's what my kingdom come and my will be done looks like. And we are on the first ship to Tarshish. Where is God asking you to obey? And you have flat out told him no with your words and actions. Second, how is God at work in our world that does not fit your presuppositions? How is God at work in our world? And I would encourage you to think about the world. I would encourage you to think about our nation. I would encourage you to think about our community, our church, your community group, your neighborhood, the building you live in. Take it as macro as you can and then keep zooming in and asking, how, God, are you at work in places that does not fit my presuppositions? I want to give you a couple examples so you know what I'm getting at here. We talked about how Jonah did this, but here are some ways that we do this. We often pre-qualify people for the gospel. So we think our culture is not interested our community is not interested. The people in my program are not interested. My coworkers, my family, my neighbor, they're not interested for whatever reason. Maybe they're of a different faith. Maybe they're of a different political persuasion than you. Maybe they post things on Facebook that make you wonder about things. Whatever it is, there are presuppositions we have about people that we automatically either disqualify them for the gospel or think they're not interested. Or we think maybe God can't save them. Maybe it's too late. We know he's powerful. We know he can do it, but we doubt and think it's too late. But every time I hear someone's testimony as they get baptized, I am blown away by the miracle of the gospel. Every time I hear someone's testimony in community group or they get, as they get baptized, I am blown away by the beauty and the power of the gospel. Because whether you're a church kid and you were raised in the church and you grew up in a Christian family, or whether you spent the first half of your adult life living for your own flesh and then you came to Jesus, it's all a miracle, right? It's all a miracle that God would save us who have fleed and gone our own way. It's amazing that God would save any of us. Why do we pre-qualify people for the gospel? The beauty of the gospel is while 
we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were running away from God. This is what Romans 5, 5 through 10 is talking about. The state of our hearts, the state of our lives before Jesus saved us. The story of the gospel and the story of the cross is not that we were all awesome and born into the right family and born into the right bloodline, so Jesus saved us. The beauty of the gospel is you were the Gentile or the Ninevite or the sinner running their own way that Jesus saved. Let's keep in mind the good news of our salvation so that we remember the power of God, what God wants to do in other people's life. This reminds us that the gospel is good news. This reminds us that the gospel is powerful. This reminds us that if the gospel can save a wretch like me, they can save, it can save anyone. An example of how we have adjusted things uh, to be in line with what we feel like God is calling us to do at the downtown church is that over the last few years, we have seen God increasingly working among grad students and international students. This does not mean we're ignoring all other demographics, but it got to the point where someone asked the question, should we focus on international students? And it got to the point where it's like, we have to disobey God and flee and go to Tarshish if we're not. Right now, it's still that, but it's grad students right now. There are so many grad students in this church. There are so many grad students that are hungry for community and the gospel, especially after this year that we've had with COVID. If we ignore that group, we're just fleeing and going the other direction. So where, where do you have presuppositions where you need to align yourself where God is already wanting to work? This may look like adding to your list of people to bless with the good news of the gospel this summer, someone that is currently not on your radar or that you have already said in your mind is not interested in the gospel. What does it look like to bless them? What does it look like to share the good news with them? The third diagnostic question is, what needs to be reordered in your schedule in order to bless others? We're going to keep talking about this over the course of the summer as we mobilize and equip ourselves to bless. But bless is just a simple acronym that reminds us what it looks like to do lifestyle evangelism. We begin with prayer. We listen to God in others. We eat with others. We serve others. And we share our story with others. What needs to change in your rhythms, in your schedule, in your priority in order to bless those around you? It may mean cutting some good things out of your schedule that aren't the best things. It may mean deactivating your Netflix account. It may mean joining some activity in our community so that you can interact with more people that are not currently believers. It may mean spending more time with your neighbors or your loved ones. It may be reorienting your life and your priorities to spend more time with someone that annoys you or that you don't like. What needs to be reordered in our lives in order to bless those who God is calling us to bless? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then God's word says that you are a vessel of mercy. 
That means you carry around the mercy and the grace and the good news of the gospel, the spirit of the living God with you wherever you go. We don't get to choose who God saves. We can just ask God to use us. Who does God want to save and who does God want to bless? Using you, using your family, using your community group, using this church to reach. We need to be open to whatever God calls us to do. As I said, we're doing all these things to be obedient to the word of God, but we also are entering into a season of mobilizing ourselves for the mission that God has called us to. So a few things that we are going to do in order to mobilize ourselves that we need to prepare our heart for. One is coming up in just a few short weeks, July 18th, we will start re-enrolling in community groups. So we will have a list as of July 11th of who all are leading community groups and what night a week and where they're meeting and all that information. And then everyone will re-sign up for community groups, either re-enrolling in your current community group or signing up for a new community group. That's in order to be ready for whoever God would save and bring into our church in the fall. June 28th through July 4th, we are not meeting as community groups, and that entire week we are asking you to pick someone to bless, to pray for, to listen to, to eat with, to serve, to share your story with. Be praying about who you would meet with during that time of June 28th through July 4th. That whole week, who would you bless? On July 18th, we are not having service as normal in this building, but we are going out and we are taking our faith in action and we are being the church in the community and doing service projects that Sunday evening on July 18th to bless our community. We'll have our fall kickoff the Sunday right before uh, school starts where we'll have a cookout outside after church and invite people to come in and enjoy fellowship and food together. With our church. And then this fall, the week after Labor Day, we'll start a series called Encountering Jesus, where we will look at scripture and look at people's encounters with Jesus, and we will ask people to consider those encounters with Jesus and have an encounter with Jesus themselves. So these are some ways that we want to mobilize the church for the purpose of mission and sharing the good news of the gospel. These things will equip our minds— These things will equip our hands. These things will add some group accountability. This is something that we can all prayerfully do together. But first, we need to prepare our hearts for mission. Otherwise, we will spectacularly fail or we will succeed at the wrong things. So we need to prepare our hearts for mission. Would you spend a moment with me as we close the sermon part of tonight and ask the Lord to show you what he would have you see in light of the sermon tonight? Just spend a moment doing that. I asked some diagnostic questions there. Even spend a moment here now asking the Lord to speak to you, and I will wrap up the sermon in prayer.
Father, thank you for speaking to us tonight. Thank you for the grace and the mercy of us just hearing your voice. God, we pray that you would continue to speak to us tonight and as we start our week. God, show us even the intentions of our heart. Show us where we have fleed from your presence. Show us where we have, with our words or actions, not obeyed you. Father, would you show us where you are at work in our world and in our community and in our church? God, we want to be a part of what you are doing. We want to be a part of you saving many in our community and in our world. God, we want to be vessels of your mercy. We want to see your spirit pour through your church and do amazing things for your name's sake. God, would you show us what's in our heart, what we need to change, what our motives are that are false. God, would you show us what you want your priorities to be in our life. God, would you show us who and how we need to bless those around us. God, the enemy would love to jump in and would love to cut this off right away and would love to distract us from what you're calling us to do. God, would you speak? in a way that we know it is your voice. Would you show us what we need to see through your spirit, your word, and your people? And God, giving, give us a willingness to obey when you call us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.